Well, Adam dipped into Acts chapter 7 last week, um, sort of seeing uh, Stephen being accused of blasphemy and then uh, addressing uh, the Sanhedrin, addressing the religious leaders. Uh, and he's going to start what is the longest recorded sermon in Scripture. And, he, and we see what, what he does is he's basically going to give kind of an overview of the history of God's people, the history of Israel. And he's doing so to come to a specific point. He's kind of using all this Old Testament history, all this truth about uh, God's people and how they responded to God's prophets and God's messengers to bring, bring it to a head to how these guys are responding to him. So it really is a long sermon with a, a singular point. So it will go pretty fast. So pick it up with me, verse 9 of chapter 7. Peter's, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Simon's, uh, Simon, Stephen, what's his name? Stephen is preaching. And here's what he says. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and, and all his house. Now, we just were in Genesis recently, so you guys know what's going on here. He's talking about when Joseph, being the favored son of, of Jacob, uh, he, he has a coat of many colors. You guys remember the story. Uh, he's, he's a bit proud of himself. He has this great dream about his brothers and his, even his mother and father bowing down to him. They become envious, sell him into slavery. But what happens? God's uh, in control and in his sovereignty raises up Joseph and makes him governor uh, over Egypt, makes him the one who's in control. And so what happens, verse 11, Now a famine and a great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance, no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out uh, our fathers first. The second time Joseph came, uh, Joseph was made uh, known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. And so Joseph Jo oh, so, sorry. So Jacob went down to Egypt and died. He and our fathers, and they carried, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought uh, for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. And so he kind of sums up uh, several dozen years of history in just a few verses, reminding them though of this basic point. They're reminding them of the Joseph they had betrayed. Now remember, he's speaking to the religious leaders. He's speaking to the uh, those who would represent the sons of Israel. And he's reminding them of their history when the sons of Israel rejected the beloved son, whom actually ended up being their deliverance, and it being the one who, who came through and made sure they didn't die in the famine. And so the, he's just wanting to remind them of, remember the Joseph that you guys rejected. So now he switches gears and he goes from Joseph to Moses, verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Now here he's summing up a couple chapters, the first couple chapters of Exodus. And the reality that God had, had promised uh, Abraham, yes, your descendants are going to go into to, uh, Egypt for 400 plus years, but then they're going to be delivered out. I'm going to bring a deliverer to send them out. And it had come to a head that these guys, Israel, had been made slaves by the Egyptians. Uh, they were being abused. It was really harsh treatment. They were oppressed. They were crying out to God for a deliverer. And things kind of came to a head where 
because there were so many Egyptian slaves that um, uh, Pharaoh began to worry, saying, look, these guys are going to rise up and revolt and take us down. So from now on, he made a law that all the male Hebrew children had to be killed. And so they were slaughtering children. They were forcing them to have their, their sons kind of just left out to the hot sun and die that way. And it was a serious time where their, Israel was being oppressed by a nation more powerful than they. At this time, Moses was born, verse 20, and he was well-pleasing to God and was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as his own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and in deeds. So again, talking about Moses, when God raises up Moses, he's favored of God from his birth. He's mighty in word, indeed impressive in, in his knowledge and able to his ability to communicate. Again, sounds like a lot like Jesus as a child, right? Verse 23, but when he was 40 years old, when Moses was 40 years old, it, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why, are you, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this same Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, uh, where he had two sons. So again, Stephen summing up the situation, Moses gets to a point where he sees the oppression of his people. He knows that the Israelites are indeed his people, though he's raised, been raised in the house of Pharaoh. And so he says, you know what, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna stand up for these guys. And so he makes a stand when he sees an oppression. He actually kills an Egyptian, buries him in the sand. So the next day thinking they're gonna go, yeah, Moses is on our side. He tries to bring a reconciliation between two guys and they go, who are you, man? Who made you ruler and judge? And they push him away. So he has to, he has to flee out to the wilderness and he finds, uh, this priest of Midian, marries his daughter, has a couple kids. Another 40 years pass. Verse 20, uh, verse 30. So when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and, he, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take, off, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground, and I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groanings, and will come down to deliver them, and now I will send you to Egypt. Look what Stephen says. This Moses whom you rejected, saying, who, who made you ruler and judge, is the one God sent to be ruler, a ruler and a deliverer, and by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness uh, 40 years. So again, Stephen's kind of summing up this issue with Joseph, he's, or, or with Moses. He's wanting the people that are listening to him, these religious leaders, to understand, listen, this is the Moses that, remember, you rejected. Not only did you betray Joseph, not only did you uh, uh, betray the beloved son, and God used that to save you, but also, listen, you initially rejected Moses. 
And yet God definitely proved that he sent them through the signs and wonders that he did. And God sent him to be the ruler and the judge. Now, so he goes from the Joseph that they had betrayed to the Moses they had rejected to now the scripture that they twisted. Verse 37. This is that Moses, Stephen says, who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now he's quoting Deuteronomy 18, and I encourage you to uh, write, write this down and look it up later. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19. Because if you read the whole context that Stephen is quoting, you'll see that what they said was, what Moses actually prophesied was, God's going to send another prophet like me. In other words, someone who's going to speak for God, and someone's going to lead my people, rule my people, and deliver my people. And, and it's really clear that whoever won't hear him won't be right with God. So he's going to be the authority. This, this prophet, this specific prophet, is going to come. Now he says in verse 38, This is he who was in the wilderness, in the, I'm sorry, in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. Now this is Moses. And with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. Now, Stephen's trying to say, listen, this Moses, this is the one whom they had accused. Remember earlier, they accused him of blaspheming, speaking blasphemous words. This is back in chapter, uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 11. They had accused Stephen of, uh, of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so Stephen's kind of going, okay, let me talk about Moses. <laughs> this Moses that you rejected. This is the Moses who spoke the word of God that you say you value above all things. Now, a lot of these guys, if you remember, were Sadducees. So they really only did value the book of Moses, the first five books of Moses, okay? And so he's saying, remember, he said he's going to send another prophet. That's what he said in those books in Deuteronomy. That's what he said. And also, he gave the living oracles. He's the one who made the point to this. But our fathers didn't obey those oracles. Yeah, you, you make a big deal about the Word of God, Stephen's trying to point out, but our fathers didn't even obey the Word of God. Now, he then says this in verse, verse 39. He says, And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us, as for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. Now you can write down Exodus 32 and you can look it up later where this story is, is being referenced. And if you remember, Moses goes up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, right? He's receiving the commandments of God, the living oracles, as Stephen calls them. And as he's up there, they're thinking, what's going on? They were scared. There was a really kind of a, a scary situation there. It's a, a holy mountain. They were not allowed to go up to it. They would, they touched it, they would die. So they think he's up there. Who knows what happened to Moses? And so what happens is the Israelites say to Aaron, Moses' brother, and one kind of operating as, as the priest and so to speak, they say, look, you need to make us gods who will deliver us. We're out here in the middle of the desert. We're supposed to have God, our God is supposed to deliver us. So make us gods. Now, if you read the story, they, they, they get all this gold together and they melt it down and they make this calf. And if you remember what happens, Aaron says to Israel, he says, behold your God. And he gives the God a name. Do you remember what it was? Yahweh. In other words, the covenant name that God had given himself, 
He says, okay, fine. We're supposed to worship Yahweh. Let's decide what we think Yahweh is like. Let's form him into a work with our hands. Now, this is important. It's important because what Stephen's wanting to do is say, look, you guys say you worship Yahweh, but your father said they worship Yahweh when they bowed down to a golden calf. So, what happens? Verse 41. So they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. And now he's going to quote Amos chapter 5. He said, did you offer me, this is God speaking through Amos, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the 40 years of the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you were made which you made to worship and i will carry you away beyond babylon so in other words god speaks through amos and he says listen you said you worship me as you went through the wilderness but you also worship these false gods moloch and rephan you also got involved in idol worship now remember, this is what Stephen's trying to do. He's, he's trying to get them. They're, they're, they're mad at him. They think that he's blasting against Moses and God. And he's saying, wait a second. Let's review our history, shall we? We as a people, the Israelites, we betrayed Joseph, whom God meant to deliver us, or meant to save us from famine. We rejected Moses, whom God sent to deliver us out of bondage. We twisted the very scripture that God gave us that we say we hold in high, such high standing. And even, even to the point of worshiping false gods, saying we're worshiping the true God. So then he gets into this, this last sort of illustration he's using. He says in verse 44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern he had seen. In other words, Moses didn't make this up. He had a vision, probably we believe, of, of a heavenly tabernacle or, or of what God exactly wanted to be done. He says, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joseph or Joshua excuse me, into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the day of David, who, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling place for the house of God, but Solomon built him a house. Now, he's here going to now talk about the tabernacle. Because remember, one of the things also in verse or chapter 6 that they're angry at um, Stephen for, they're, they're twisting their accusations against him. But still, they, they, they accused him in verse 14. They said, we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that is the temple, and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And so they really... Uh, are, are, are protective of their temple. And so Stephen's going, let's remind you now of the history of, your te- of this temple. Where did it start? And so he reminds him, listen, you're in the wilderness, so what happens? Okay, God appointed a tabernacle to be made. It was God's idea that there would be a tabernacle made. And he designed what it was supposed to look like. And then basically that carried on with Joshua as they went into the promised land, the land of the Gentiles, the land of Canaan. But it was God who drove these people out. And eventually what happens? He raises up a king. There's this King David who found favor in God's eyes. And David had in his heart to to build a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it wasn't him who did it, of course. It was Solomon who built him a house. Now we know from the history of the Old Testament that God wouldn't let David build a temple because he had blood on his hands. He was too much of a man of war. 
But notice what, what Stephen says here in verse 48. He says, however, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. And he goes to quote Isaiah and the Psalms. Look what he says, verse 49. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. This is God speaking. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Now remember that the Jews looked at the temple as the most holy place. They would, they would structure the seriousness of their promises or their vows based on how they connected it to the temple. So if they swore upon the foundation of the temple, it would be worth such, such and such. But if they swore on the gold of the temple, it would be worth even more. And so this is what they did. They were so, so enamored with the temple that they forgot that God doesn't need it in the first place. It's, it's not, that's not what God needs. He said to his, he said to his people, look, yeah, go ahead. He blessed Solomon. I've been reading this recently in 1 Kings. He blesses Solomon when Solomon makes the temple and dedicates the temple. He fills it with his presence. He blesses it, but he doesn't need it. He doesn't need the temple to dwell in. And yet these guys are so concerned. Hey, you're going to tear down the temple. Now remember, what did Jesus actually say? He said, tear down this temple and in three days I will rise, I will raise it up. What was he talking about? The temple of his body, wasn't he? He is the temple of God. Now, all this stuff that he's talking about in this very long sermon, this Joseph that they betrayed, this Moses that they rejected, the scripture that they, they twisted, and this temple that they misunderstood, all points to these hearts that they had hardened, their own. And that's why he says this in verse 51. He says, you stiff Knacked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Now, if somebody wants to kill you, it's really not really wise to go, what a bunch of stiff-necked idiots you guys are. But Stephen was bold. I love the fact that he, he doesn't, he's not afraid to sort of just call these guys out. He said, tells them, this is exactly what you do. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. I think if we get anything from Stephen's sermon, it needs to be this. That we can be absolutely sure that we're doing all that God wants us to do and be absolutely wrong. That, that we can be those who think we're doing exactly what God would lead us to do by His Spirit and actually be resisting the Holy Spirit the whole time. Especially, listen, if we're not submitted to Jesus. Stephen wants these guys to recognize, look, should you really be all that surprised? Should you be surprised that God would send a Messiah who would suffer? Should you be that surprised that the, the prophet, the predicted prophet that Moses would send, would be one whom you would maybe initially betray and then reject and then take his words and twist them? Should that really surprise you knowing your own history? 
Now, obviously, Stephen is speaking to guys who have rejected the gospel not once, not twice, but at least three times. You're talking about a group of people who have heard the gospel clearly. They've seen, uh, they, they heard Jesus preach. They, they, these were, uh, among these were probably men that were there when Christ was uh, arrested, beaten, and crucified. Uh, they, they, they saw the result of Pentecost. They heard the anointed preaching of Peter. These are guys that are really hard-hearted and pushing away the gospel. They're just rejecting the gospel. And so obviously this just applies first and foremost to people who refuse, who've heard the gospel and refuse to hear it. But I think it's wise of us to be sober about what's going on. Because it's easy, it can be easy for us to look at these guys and go, what was wrong with them? But forget, you know, how easy do we push God away? How, how quick are we to, to, you know, betray those whom God calls us to love or reject those whom God calls us to follow or twist that which God's given us as light and truth or misunderstand the whole purpose of those we're, we're called to gather together with and worship. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, and of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. What does James say about those who hear the word of God but don't do it? What does he say about them? He says they deceive themselves. I don't want to give two harsh messages in one day. <laughs> but I do want us to be sober about this. Stephen was willing to take the time to unpack Scripture in a way that Jesus was the center in a way that would expose the wickedness of man's heart, even religious man's heart. Now, let me give some quick practical illustration or practical application of this before we pray. We talk to a lot, we hopefully interact with a lot of different people during the week, and some of the people that we interact with are people that are very religious. Uh, they have a certain measure of faith, whether it's a, an offshoot of Christianity or uh, another religion. Uh, it could be Islam, Hindu, Jewish, whatever. But we meet people that have a certain measure of faith. Maybe they have uh, their measure of faith is, is humanistic. Maybe they're, they're, they're humanist. They, their faith is in uh, the collective potential of humanity. But they're religious. They have a worldview. They have a, a sense of this is what we need to do. This is where we're going to find deliverance. This is where we're going to find truth. This is where we're going to find purpose. And I think we need to patiently be willing to do what it takes to expose their hearts. I think one of the, the reasons why we don't see uh, persecution 
is because we really don't say things that are, well, that are that upsetting to people. I mean, seriously, why would someone beat us up to say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Why would somebody, you know, say, I don't want to be your friend anymore when you just say, you know, I just, I just know you've gone through a lot and I just want you to know God cares. They're not going to be mad at you for that. But the truth is, as we engage with people and we begin to talk about the fact that what we need is not just sort of a healing salve over our, our wounded hearts, but we need heart transplants because our hearts are exceedingly wicked above all things. We need God to cut out the old one and put in a new one. We don't just need you know, to be forgiven because, well, we tried hard, but we didn't quite get there. We need God to have mercy on us because we gave him the finger and went the other way. Now, again, I'm not saying that we should be this harsh. You can leave that for me. <laughs> But I am saying we need to be direct, as Stephen was direct. We need to be willing to, with wisdom, with patience, with gentleness and love, speak what the truth is. Now Stephen's going bold at the end here, and we're going to talk next week about what happens to him. And in one sense it's not pretty, in another, another sense it's amazingly inspiring, especially when we see what God's sovereignly working it together with. But I do think we need to be those that are not soft-pedaling the gospel too much. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we have to hard-press it every time we talk to somebody about Jesus. But let's not soft-pedal the gospel so much that what ends up happening is the people who have betrayed Joseph, <laughs> rejected Moses, twisted the scripture, and misunderstood the temple think they still got it okay. They're doing okay. Now let's let ask God for the same power that Stephen had, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, whom when he sat, stood, sat before these people, they looked at him, they saw his face as the face of an angel. Unflinching, focused on God, wanting to only speak the truth. Amen.